as I think in terms of this particular theme, and you've noticed that I've been walking through uh, passages of First John because I find that uh, uh, John really speaks to the heart. He was uh, probably the disciple who was closest to the heart of Jesus uh, throughout uh, the ministry of Jesus and especially in the final uh, stages of Jesus' earthly life. Uh, even at the time of the uh, institution of the Lord's Supper, it was, it was John who leaned against Jesus' breast. He was the one who had very intimate relationship. And again and again, uh, throughout his writings, whether that is in the record of the gospel, whether that's in his letter, whether that is in the, in the book of Revelation, uh, when, while he was on the Isle of Patmos, uh, he simply recalls the things that he heard Jesus say. And so it's first-hand account. It's a person who actually spent significant time and intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus. And so we can learn from him uh, in that way. And of course, all of that has been uh, provided for us and preserved for us uh, through the Holy Spirit. As I look at the world in which we live these days, uh, there's hardly a newscast that I don't find myself either disturbed or disgusted or upset about something simply because we're living in a fallen world. And whether we look at the world news, uh, where we continue to hear the struggles of trying to bring help to victims in natural disaster zones and in war zones, and often the people in authority actually prevent the people who are trying to bring help. It doesn't make sense in my mind that here are convoys of food and clothing and help available, and then they're being banned from entering uh, to help the very people who need it. And it seems like there's, you know, Satan himself is empowering some of these situations to stall any kind of godly help in the world. Uh, or if we look at Canada Watch, uh, our nation right now is caught up in the uh, pre-political speculations and rhetoric uh, about uh, upcoming elections, and we have all kinds of games being played uh, you know, to, to one-upmanship and outdoing each other. And it seems like there is no appetite for working together for the good of the nation. It's just, what can we do that will show up the others in, in some way? And, and that, that falls on both sides of the issues, and all of our parties are guilty of that to some extent. Or whether you look at the, the local news, and I don't want to be a bearer just of, of bad news this morning, but in, in the local news you have daily reports of personal tragedies, crimes, situations of injustice, even through our justice system. Very brief little focus here, because it's very dear to my heart, since our son Michael was uh, probably one of the best friends to Pastor Dan Nell, who's just re recently made the news again. Pastor Dan Nell was a worship pastor over at Rocky View Alliance, and back uh, in 2015, uh, they were blessed with a little baby boy, and his wife and, and Dan were just ecstatic about it. The little boy had some problems. The baby had some issues, and there were a number of uh, situations that developed. But he only lived three months. Uh, back in August 2015, three-month-old three infant Cyrus uh, was in medical distress. Someone called EMS uh, from, the, uh, from the home, uh, and uh, he was taken to the hospital and died a day later. 
In, in those cases, there always is an investigation because there's always a danger that it could have been an abuse situation or whatever, but uh, it was inconclusive, and so the, the parents were allowed to, to grieve and, and put to rest their little baby. Uh, and, and our son, Mike, was very much involved with him at that time. He was there almost every day, spent time with him at the hospital, spent time with him during the whole grieving process. About a year and a half later, an ambitious uh, investigator on the police force decided to reopen the case. And then after two and a half years of extended investigation, they finally, back in 2017, arrested Pastor Dan. As soon as that happened, he was let go from the church because if, you know, who wants to be worshiping under someone who's under suspicion of having murdered his own child? This has dragged on all this time, and there was supposed to be a court case March 4th this year. This last week, the case was dropped because there was not sufficient evidence. In the process, Pastor Dan's career and his reputation has been ruined. When that first hit the news back uh, about two years ago, uh, his house was on the television news. He was prominently displayed. There were statements made by the police that typically in a case like this, it's the father who has uh, shaken the baby or something in a rage. And because Dan is a big boy, it's believable. Even when, when the article came out this week in which it said uh, that this case has been dropped, the picture is this little three-month-old baby looking, lying on the side and you know who cannot be sympathetic to this? And so even though he has been, the charges have been dismissed, he is still guilty in the world's court. That's hardly fair. And he has no recourse. There's no way he can clear his name beyond that. And the Crown has the opportunity for a whole year, if they so wish, to reopen the case. So it's hanging over his head. His life and everything has been destroyed. Unfortunately, even the press release is not very clear as to what really happened. And so people are made to believe whatever they want to believe about the situation. This is an example of how truth can be very elusive. How do we know what is true? Even in the press, uh, the way it is presented it leaves it wide open. Is the man guilty? Is he not guilty? Was it just dropped because we can't make a case of it? Or is, in fact, there is enough evidence to say it never happened? That's what they concluded way back when the baby first died, when the first investigation was, was handled. Now, when we come to our biblical text in First John chapter 4, we find that things were not a whole lot different in John's Day, because information and news was dependent largely on traveling people who came through, and however truthful their storytelling was, that's what people locally found out and heard about the world around them. And for believers, the primary source of truth were the, the epistles, were the writings that were being circulated among the churches. And so even when you wanted to know, we have the Word of God. We have a printed copy. They did not have that privilege at that point because these were just simply loose uh, 
letters and scriptures and, uh, that, that were being circulated. They had the Old Testament, the Talmud, uh, they had the law, they had the Jewish uh, holy scriptures, but the New Testament was just in the developmental stage and beginning to happen. And so uh, John reminded in the previous chapter, chapter 3, uh, these fellow believers for, of, of the need to pay attention not only to the Word of God, but to the inner witness of the Holy Spirit who would help us to discern truth from error, truth from falsehood, truth from that which was deliberately disseminated to be uh, misleading people. And so he, he said in John uh, chapter 3, verse 24, 1 John, uh, those who obey his commands live in him, that is in Jesus, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. So when you read the word of God, it is the Holy Spirit in your heart that confirms, yeah, this is the truth. This is what we need to do. This is the way. Walk ye in it. This is what the Spirit of God does for us. And, and John pointed out the need for being vigilant in seeking to discern spirit, the spirit of truth, versus the spirit of error or, or deception. Uh, verses 1 to 6 in chapter 4 that was read for us, uh, the challenge our challenge is to navigate the turbulent waters of secular society over against the truth that we have in Jesus and the truth that we have in the Word of God. Back then, secular society, which was really the Roman uh, government uh, occupying Israel at that point, so they were under foreign occupancy, which is never a happy uh, situation, and the religious leaders of the day in the, in the Jewish system were hostile towards Christianity. Christianity, which was called the way, and it was considered like a cultish development within the Israeli uh, religious system, and, and so they were suspect. People were questioning. People were persecuting those who were uh, following Jesus because the nation as a whole and the religious leadership had not accepted Jesus as the Messiah. And so anybody talking about Jesus, well, you're traitors to the cause was, was the idea. Not only this, within the Christian church, very early in its development, false teachers arose, people who, 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 who read portions of the word and then thought their own thoughts and wanted to improve on the truth that was in the Word. And so you had the Gnostics uh, who claimed that they somehow had superior knowledge. They, if you really want to know, and, and I, when I was a brand new uh, baby Christian uh, at, at 17 years of age, uh, we had a group in our church in Winnipeg. Uh, they had an aunt who, who was teaching universalism, that in the end everybody will be reconciled, even the devil will be reconciled to God, is what, what this lady taught. And I had somebody come to me and say, how are you doing in your Christian life? And I thought, well, that's nice. They're concerned about me. But the next thing they said raised a, 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 a red flag in my mind. You should come on Thursday evenings. Our aunt teaches the word the way it should really be taught. And I said, okay, wait a minute. Are you telling me that our pastor is not teaching the word the way it should be taught? What are you talking about? And so I'm, I'm so grateful that I never got drawn into that. 
because at that point, um, there was just that inner sense. I'm sure it was the Spirit of God saying, Sig, this is not something you want to get involved in. So I said, thanks, but no thanks. Well, about a year and a half later, it came to a confrontation in our church. And these heretic teachers, these people who were teaching a false truth, a lie, were confronted. But when, when, when the challenge was given, either you uh, leave that false teaching or leave the church, 70 people walked out of the church. Not all of them were universalists. But they had become so enamored with this lady who was teaching the Bible the way it should be taught that out of sympathy for her and her family, these people all walked out. It was a major catastrophe in the church. And as a young believer, I experienced that. I said, wow, I did not realize this could happen in a Christian church, but it did. That's what it was like at that time. Now, today, our secular society, whether they are modernists or postmodern in their thinking, reject absolute truth. So anything that has moral implications, anything that says, thus saith the Lord, is not acceptable. In fact, uh, uh, when I was taking a course in philosophy at the University of Winnipeg a number of years ago, uh, ethics, moral philosophy was the course. Our teacher was a Jewish person who, who was not really a Jewish uh, practicing believer. He, he, when he heard that I was a pastor, he said publicly in front of the whole class, if you quote the Bible in my class, you flunk the course. I said, excuse me? You're saying to me, you're teaching moral philosophy and the greatest document on morality that has ever been written and has stood the test of time over all these years is not acceptable to you? Sir, what on earth do you teach? And I had a lot of people in the class afterwards say, good for you. Good for you. Well, I didn't fail the course, but of all of my courses in university, it was the only one that was below a B, uh, and that was simply because he would not accept. I didn't quote the Bible, incidentally, but I quoted Immanuel Kant, who quoted the Bible. I quoted Schleiermacher, who quoted the Bible. These were all known philosophers, and he still couldn't accept it. That's the kind of world we live in. And just because something is in print does not make it necessarily true. Uh, While I was in the university, I decided my Bible was not on trial. The lectures were. And I would compare what they said to what I knew to be God's perspective on life. And the truth is there are way too many self-proclaimed experts, both secular and religious, that really don't have the truth. So we need to have a trustworthy standard, the truth about Jesus. This is what John is talking about in verses 2 to 3. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. 
Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You see, the idea of Antichrist is not only someone who is against. It's someone who is trying to replace Christ with their own ideas. Uh, So we need to have a deeper knowledge of the Word of God. We need to study the Bible. Uh, We always need to check the the Christology of the people who proclaim. Even when you hear radio preachers ask, whether on television, it doesn't matter how glitzy their program, what do they say about Jesus Christ? That's the crux of the matter. The Christology, what they believe about Jesus And uh, anything else is the spirit of Antichrist. Now, the confidence that we can have as believers, he says, you dear children, talking of course to fellow believers, and again, he's John the Elder, who loves these people, even though some of them he has never met before. You are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in you. In the world. In the King James Version, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. What a comforting truth it is for us that we don't have to worry about what is truth. We already know that. We already have that in Jesus. We already have that in the Word of God, which has stood the test. And it is still the most quoted book in the world, even in our secular society today. Always amazes me. When there's a catastrophe, when there are some troubles, even uh, political leaders who never talk about prayer, who never talk about God, always talk about the fact our thoughts and our prayers are with you. Well, who are you praying to if there is no God? Who are you praying to if Jesus is not real, if the word of God and the truth is not there? And so we need to understand that in contrast uh, between... Our biblical worldview, which is based on what God has said, he is the creator and he's told us how it all began. He has made a record for us so that we could understand the unfolding of his creative uh, genius and power. Uh, And the contrast between that and a secular worldview uh, can also be reflected in, in the counselors that we seek in the world. Uh, Whenever there's a catastrophe, people are being brought in to help Uh, you know, uh, mitigate the circumstances and help people come to terms with their grief, whether that's a school shooting, whether that's the, uh, what happened uh, in Saskatchewan with that uh, terrible bus disaster and so on. But you need to be asking the question, where does that psychologist or where does that counselor come from in their worldview? Because this is what John is saying here in verses 5 and 6. They are from the world. Therefore, speak from the viewpoint of the world, a worldview that is secular, anti-God. And the world listens to them. But we are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whosoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood, or deception as as the other... uh, Translation suggested. I had a bad experience when I was a very, very young pastor. 
out in Manitoba. I had a lady that was having some major psychological problems, and she always, if, if the last row in the church was not free, she would turn around and go home. And I talked with her. I said, well, why do you do that? And she says, well, when I sit further to the front, I feel that everybody in the congregation behind me is staring at the back of my head. I said, well, physically that may be true, although I don't think they'll focus on that. But you know, she was paranoid about this. And back then, there were no Christian counselors. So I, I, I encouraged her. I prayed with her, talked with her, could not get through, did not, did not have the expertise, had not taken any counseling courses at that point. So I referred her to a psychologist. And she was having guilt feelings about the fact that her father, when he needed help, uh, wanted to live with them, and she didn't want that because she didn't want to be burdened with caring for her father. And so now he had died shortly after that, and she felt guilty about all of that. And I, I tried to help her understand, to forgive herself, ask God's forgiveness. She couldn't ask her dad's forgiveness because he'd passed on. The psychologist said to her, you'd be okay if you just leave alone your religious scruples. Quit going to church. Remember, I had referred her to the psychologist. Well, when I heard that, I said, I'll never do that again. This is hardly helpful. But you see, he came from a worldly point of view, and if you have moral issues, just forget about morality. Doesn't really matter. Anything that feels good, do it. That's how the world looks at it. So there's a big contrast. Before you accept anybody's advice, check the source. Ask what is their basic worldview, um, whether they are a speaker or a writer, uh, because the Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist, is powerful in this world. Not all powerful, God is all powerful, but it is pervasive. It seems like everybody around us, even people who make some kind of religious concessions, still are primarily worldly in their worldview and in their perspective. And so, even if you're looking for family advice, ask who is the counselor, what, where do they come from. Uh, we need to have more than knowledge of the truth. We need to experience the truth as it is in Jesus through the love of God. Because truth in itself, people can be so dead right that they're actually dead wrong in their attitude. It needs to be mixed. The Bible talks about always speaking truth in love. That's in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. And so here's what John unfolds for us. He talks about the promised counselor, not a worldly counselor, but a counselor that God provides. He says he is to guide the believers. No one has ever seen God. But if we love each other, God gives uh, lives in us, and his love is made complete, is perfected in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. It's, again, the Holy Spirit active in the life of the believer. Now, as Baptists, we haven't mentioned the Holy Spirit nearly often enough in the past. When I first started in the Christian life, uh, I understood that there's God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, never to be mentioned again. Because they were paranoid, they were upset about what had happened in Germany. This was a German Baptist church, where their church had split in half because of the Pentecostal movement, and some of the excesses 
it led to, and so they distanced themselves. Let's not mention the Holy Spirit just in case. When we had the spiritual revival back in the early 70s, uh, we had some wonderful, refreshing times with the Holy Spirit, and I had a, a committee come to me as a pastor. This was in Pinawa, Manitoba, a church planting situation, uh, and, and this uh, committee talked to me and said, Pastor Sig, we find that your preaching has become somehow morose. It has become sort of too introspective. I said, well, what, what do you mean by that? Give me an example. While you're talking about, you know, searching the Spirit of God and allowing the Spirit to, you know, a verse like, search me, O God, and know my heart, they, they objected to that. I said, you know what? That was not my words. I'm just quoting from the Psalms. That's in the Word of God. Did you know, know that? Yeah, but you also, even the songs you pick. Why? Because some of those songs were reflecting that same idea. Search me, O God. I want to be open to you. I want to seek. I want more of you. And, 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 and people almost were paranoid about that in the church. And so they challenged me on this. Well, what, what, what John is saying here, God has given us his Holy Spirit. And uh, this is the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus made in John chapter 14, verses 15 to 17. If you love me, you will obey my command, what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. And he was already predicting what would happen in our age, the age of grace, where the Spirit of God lives in the believer and where the Spirit of God can help us and motivate us and instruct us and uh, encourage us along the way. Uh, Jesus was the original counselor of his band of disciples, but now the Holy Spirit would be another counselor, the parakletos, the one that he would send uh, in order to help them into all truth. And the central truth of Scripture is the Father's amazing love. God is love, he says. Whoever lives in love lives in God. Now, this is not Hollywood-style love. This is godly love, agape love, the kind of love that wishes the best for everyone in the name of Jesus and by the power of God. Love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment, because in this world we are like him. And I need to ask myself, is that true of me? Am I really like him? And then he goes on to say that there's a wonderful byproduct of God's amazing love. No more fear. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The man who fears is not made perfect in love, we love him because he first loved us. But that brings a spiritual obligation for us. And that spiritual obligation uh, is that if we say we love God, we cannot be at odds with each other. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, who he can interact with, cannot love God who has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must, don't miss that word, must 
also love his brother. So recognizing God's love in our lives obligates me to love others around me. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is not a suggestion. It's a command. It is absolutely essential that we learn to love. And, and, and in that sense, uh, uh, again, it, it goes right back to what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 22, 37 and four, to 40. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Speaking truth in love, learning to love each other, even when there are some things about each other that may not be very likable. So the question is, how can I be more, more responsive to God's great commandment? How can I demonstrate the reality of God's love, agape love, in my life? That comes out in practical terms on how we treat each other. Pastor uh, Doug Peebles, who used to be the pastor, very beloved pastor of our church for many, many years, he, he always used to say, how we treat each other is how we treat Jesus. That's a good thought to keep in mind, okay? And we could ask the question, what is one specific act of love that, that I can do this week that will somehow express love towards others around me?